Chapter 15 Young Folks' History of the American Revolution. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Colonel Gary Bohannon. GaryBohannon.com. Young Folks' History of the American Revolution by Everett Tomlinson. Trenton and Princeton. Something must be done, and at once or the cause was lost forever. And Washington was equal to the emergency. In their confidence that the end of the war had come, many of the British soldiers had returned from the march to New York. Some were sent to Newport, and Cornwallis himself was expecting to sail for home within a few days. Upon the Hessians was left largely the responsibility for completing the few duties that yet remained, while the remnant of the American army was still clinging together. The numbers had indeed been slightly increased by the arrival of the troops of Sullivan and Gates, but altogether the great commander did not have more than 6,000 men. Washington's plan was to fall upon the Hessian forces at three different places at the same time. At Burlington, where Count Donop had 2,000 men, General Gates was to strike. General Ewing was to cross the Delaware opposite Trenton and attack the town. And at the same time, Washington, Green, Sullivan, Knox, and others were to cross the river about nine miles above Trenton and advance upon the place from the northern side. Troubles are said never to come singly, and the great heart of Washington must have been almost ready to despair when the little dandy, Gates, begged off on the plea of illness and started for Baltimore, whither Congress had gone because of the fear that Philadelphia would speedily be in the hands of the Redcoats. In addition to the departure of Gates, Cadwallader, who took his place, was not able to get his forces across the river, which was filled with floating ice, and Ewing also failed to perform the task which had been assigned to him. Still determined, Washington kept on. Christmas Eve was the night he had selected, because he rightly believed the Hessians in Trenton would be engaged in their own carousals in celebration of the day, and the British light horse in the town could be overcome. At sunset, when the leader and his force of 2,400 men arrived at the place where the crossing was to be made, it had not seemed possible that the little band could gain the opposite shore. The wind and storm were severe, and great blocks of ice were borne swiftly down the river by the strong current. But Glover and his hardy fishermen, who had so successfully ferried the army across from Brooklyn after the Battle of Long Island, were equal to the present emergency. For ten long hours the boats made their way back and forth across the river, Washington standing all the time upon the bank watching the crossing, and apparently unmindful of the wind and storm. At last all were safe on the Jersey shore. Still, nine miles remained between the advancing army and Trenton, and the march must be made over half-frozen roads and in the face of a blinding storm of snow and sleet. The men were drenched, their guns wet, their scanty clothing was stiff with ice, their shoeless feet left bloody footprints on the snow. But on they moved, for something of the lion heart of the leader had imparted itself to all his followers. Meanwhile, Washington had not been mistaken in supposing that the Hessians, unsuspicious of peril, would be spending the hours in a carousal. Many of the British light horse were off on foraging or pillaging expeditions and the Germans were making night hideous with their songs and shouts and drinking bouts. Colonel Rawl himself, the commander of the Hessians, was spending the night in the home of Abraham Hunt, a man who had dealings with both sides, and was true to neither. On this particular night, 
Hunt had invited Colonel Rawl and a few others to a Christmas supper at his house, and far into the night the unsuspecting officers continued their card-playing and drinking. Colonel Rawl was about to deal when his negro servant, against express orders, entered the room, and thrust a note into the Hessian's hand, explaining that the man who had brought it had first begged to be permitted to enter himself, but had been refused, and that then he had written the note, and declared that Colonel Rawl must have it immediately, as it was of the very highest importance. If the Colonel had known that the note was a word brought by a Tory who had discovered the presence of the advancing American army, it is more than likely that the history of the Revolution would have been far different from what it was. However, Colonel Rawl did not stop his game, but thrust the note unread into his pocket, and so never knew of Washington's approach until it was too late to act. Many of the greatest events in history have turned upon a pivot no larger than the negligence of the Hessian colonel. Meanwhile, the little American force was steadily approaching in two divisions, one led by Sullivan along the lower road, and the other led by Green on the upper road. With their bayonets, the Americans drove back the startled outposts, and in a brief time the cannon had been so planted that the streets could be swept. Colonel Rawl, who at last had realized the peril and rushed forth from Hunt's house to rally his men, together with sixteen others, had been shot, and almost a thousand of the hired Hessians were speedily prisoners in the hands of the victorious Americans. On the following day, Cadwallader, chagrined when he learned that Washington had crossed the Delaware in spite of the storm and gained a victory at Trenton, at once crossed to Bordentown. But Count Donop and his Hessians had fled to Princeton, Brunswick, and Amboy, for they too had heard of what the American commander had accomplished at Trenton, and they had no mind to be treated after the same fashion. Four days afterward, Washington, who had crossed back over the river after his victory, again recrossed, and with his troops once more occupied the town he had captured. So the town, almost a thousand prisoners, six brass field pieces, a thousand stands of arms, twelve drums, and four colors had fallen into the hands of the victors, and all with the loss of only four men, two of whom had been frozen to death on the terrible march to Trenton. The loss of the colors was not the least in the estimation of the Hessians. On their standards were engraved the words, Nesset Pericula, and this fact led one of the Patriot newspapers to print the following epigram. Quote, the man who submits without striking a blow may be said, in a sense, no danger to know. I pray thee, what harm by the humble submission? At Trenton was done to the standard of Hessian. The parole of honor which the Hessian officers signed is still in existence. It is hardly necessary to write of the consternation of the news of the victory of Trenton produced in New York. Cornwallis naturally gave up all thoughts of his return to England passage for which had already been engaged, and started post-haste for Princeton, for he was fearful that Washington would at once move either upon that place, or New Brunswick, where many of the British stores were kept. General Green, with about six hundred men, had been sent to bother him on the march, but the horrible condition of the roads delayed the British general far more than the little force of Continentals could do, though they of course were not idle. On January 2nd, Lord Cornwallis started with almost 8,000 men from Princeton for Trenton. And when, near nightfall, after a hard and trying march, he arrived at his journey's end, he found his enemy encamped on the opposite bank of a little stream that flowed into the Delaware, not far from Trenton, named the Assenpink, or Assenpink. Across this there were bridges, and at first Cornwallis started to cross there, but the desperate Americans poured such a fire into the advancing ranks that this plan was speedily abandoned. 
at least until morning should come. But the British leader was jubilant, for now, as he declared, he was confident that at last he, quote, had bagged the old fox, unquote, as he nicknamed his foe. What was Washington to do? Close before him was his enemy, eager and ready for battle. His own men were almost worn out, and even if they could hold the bridges, there were fords nearby through which the redcoats could easily gain the side on which the Americans were encamped. Washington soon decided to call a council of his officers, and calmly listened while one after another gave it as his decided opinion that the only thing to be done was to leave the place in the darkness as fast as they could go. After listening to the words of all, the commander gave his own opinion, which was that leaving a few men in the camp to keep up an appearance of digging trenches and to keep the fires burning, the rest of the army should start for Princeton and attack the redcoats that were there. Almost every officer was aghast at the suggestion, and hardly one believed that the proposal was wise. The roads were heavy with mud, the enemy was too strong to be attacked, and various other objections were offered. But at that very time the wind died away, and the air became intensely cold, so cold that the very mud in the roads began to freeze solidly. Almost hopeless of success, the plan of Washington was at last agreed to, and after leaving just men enough to handle the picks and shovels within the hearing of the British sentries, and to supply the fires with fence rails, the entire body silently departed from the bank of the little stream and started grimly for Princeton. It was near sunrise when, near to Princeton, they met the advancing force of Colonel Mawhood, who had started for Trenton to join Cornwallis. Instantly the Redcoats fell upon the straggling Continentals, believing as they did that they were trying to run away. Run they did, but it was not away from, but directly toward the approaching British. Back and forth the opposing lines were driven until brave Hugh Mercer, the Jersey general, fell under the bayonets of the Redcoats, who, mistaking him at first for Washington, clubbed him upon the head and body until he was covered with bruises. His men, almost overwhelmed by this loss, were beginning to fall back. But just at that moment Washington himself, very much alive and terribly in earnest, rode into their midst, rallied the men, and the battle became fierce again, until in a few minutes the British lines were cut, and one part was running towards Trenton, and the other making equally good time over the road toward New Brunswick, while two hundred of their recent comrades lay dead or wounded on the field, and three hundred more were prisoners. The Americans had not lost one hundred men all told in the fearful struggle, which had lasted less than half an hour. It was at this time that Cornwallis, back near Trenton, opened his eyes and could hardly believe what he saw, a camp deserted by his foes. At the same time there came sounds from the distance that were very like thunder, but the British general instantly knew it was not thunder, and quickly understood what it really was. Washington, the old fox, had left the Assunpink and was fighting at Princeton. Instantly he started to the aid of his comrades, but the morning sun softened the roads which had been hard enough to bear the weight of the cannon of the Americans, and his progress was slow so slow that when he arrived the only sight he beheld was that of men destroying the bridge over Stony Brook. These were scattered by his cannon, but not until the planks had been thrown into the brook and the men had escaped. Into the cold, rushing waters the eager redcoats dashed and then rushed on towards Princeton. But when a thirty-two-pounder at the west end of the village was fired at them, the British halted, Cornwallis thinking that Washington was intending to make a stand there and give him battle. An hour was spent in reconnoitering, and then, when the scarlet-clad forces entered the village, 
just one of the rebels was to be seen, for Washington, with all his men, was chasing two British regiments toward New Brunswick. So the Battle of Princeton, January 3, 1777, was quickly added to that at Trenton, and the crisis of the Revolution had been safely passed. Once more Washington consulted his fellow generals as to what was best to be done, and just as they had all a brief time before opposed his advance upon Princeton, so now they all, proud of the success that had been won, were eager to push on for Brunswick. But again the great leader opposed their counsel and declared that they must abandon that attempt and seek winter quarters among the hills of northern New Jersey. The men were too poorly equipped, he declared, and were almost exhausted by the continuous strain which they had borne for the past few weeks, and it was better to rest on laurels already won than to endanger all by entering another contest in which the odds would be decidedly against them. Reluctantly his advice was followed, and while the desperate British pushed on for Brunswick to protect their stores in that town, Washington and his little army, confidence in a measure restored by the two victories won, started for Morristown, where they went into winter quarters. Several skirmishes afterward occurred, but with the sole result of the British withdrawing into New York and Brunswick and Sandy Hook. All that the Redcoats had really succeeded in taking, besides many prisoners and stores, had been New York City and Newport, Rhode Island, which they had also seized in December, 1776. The effect of the victories of Trenton and Princeton quickly became marked, and Congress vested powers in Washington that almost made him a dictator in the New World. Measures were taken for increasing the army. Many of the soldiers had been induced to remain, and Washington had, in addition to his pleadings with his men, declared that he himself would become personally responsible for the small bounty he had promised. The promise of a tract of one hundred acres of land was also held out to each soldier who would enlist for three years, or until the end of the war, and while the country rang with his praises, the commander began to think he really saw a ray of hope in the struggle, which it was now his plan to make a long one, rather than a sharp, short contest. In money matters, which in a new country, and one almost without resources, we may be sure presented a very trying problem. Washington had been greatly aided by Robert Morris, whose quiet work, though it was not generally known, really was one of the strongest forces in the building of the new nation. While the patriots were singing the praises of Washington, word of his success was brought to his mother, who was living in a quiet home near Fredericksburg, Virginia which her son had selected for her. She was a strong woman, with affection that was very deep, but which she seldom showed. Indeed, Lafayette declared that she was almost a type of the Spartan mother, and that he honored her as he did but few women in the history of the world. Not one word of praise did she bestow upon her son for his great deeds, but doubtless both fully understood what her true feelings were. From his quarters at Morristown, January 25th, Washington sent forth the following proclamation, or as the Tory papers sneeringly termed it, quote, the proclamation of the Lord Protector, Mr. George Washington, unquote. Washington's proclamation, quote, whereas several persons, inhabitants of the United States of America, influenced by inimical motives, intimidated by the threats of the enemy, or deluded by a proclamation issued the 30th of November last, by Lord and General Howe, styled the King's Commissioners for granting pardons, etc., now at open war and invading these states, have been so lost to the interest and welfare of their country 
as to repair to the enemy, sign a declaration of fidelity, and in some instances have been compelled to take the oaths of allegiance and engage not to take up arms or encourage others to do so against the king of Great Britain. And whereas it has become necessary to distinguish between the friends of America and those of Great Britain, inhabitants of these states, and that every man who receives protection from, and is a subject of any state, not being conscientiously scrupulous against bearing arms, should stand ready to defend the same against hostile invasion. I do, therefore, in behalf of the United States, by virtue of the powers committed to me by Congress, hereby strictly command and require every person, having subscribed such declaration, taken such oaths, and accepted such protection and certificate, to repair to headquarters, or to the quarters of the nearest general offices of the Continental Army or Militia, until further provision can be made by civil authority, and there deliver up such protection, certificate, and passports, and take the oath of allegiance to the United States of America. Nevertheless, by granting full liberty to all such as prefer the interest and protection of Great Britain to the freedom and happiness of their country, forthwith to withdraw themselves and families within the enemy's lines. And I do hereby declare that all and every person who may neglect or refuse to comply with this order within thirty days from the date hereof will be deemed adherents to the King of Great Britain and treated as common enemies of these American states. This proclamation had a very marked and immediate effect, though it was bitterly assailed and ridiculed by the Tories of New Jersey. Meanwhile, the many prisoners in New York City were treated after a manner that is almost beyond belief today. This in part was due to the anger of the British over their failure to subdue the rebellion, in part, no doubt, to the easy-going good nature of Howe, who probably did not fully understand all that was being done, and still more to the brutality of the men in charge of the wretched prisoners, of whom the infamous Cunningham was the leader. No better description of their condition and sufferings can be given than that which was contained in one of the Patriot papers of that time. Quote, as soon as they were taken, they were robbed of all their baggage, of whatever money they had, though it were of paper, and could be of no advantage to the enemy, of their silver shoe buckles, and knee buckles, etc., and many were stripped almost naked of their clothes, especially those who had good clothes were stripped at once, being told that such clothes were too good for rebels. Thus deprived of their clothes and baggage, they were unable to shift even their linen, and were obliged to wear the same shirts for even three or four months together, whereby they became extremely nasty. And this of itself was sufficient to bring on them many mortal diseases. After they were taken, they were in the first place put on board ships and thrust down into the hold, where not a breath of fresh air could be obtained, and they were nearly suffocated for want of air. And yet these same persons, after lying in the situation for a while till the pores of their bodies were as perfectly opened as possible, were of a sudden taken out and put into some of the churches in New York. Without covering or a spark of fire, they were suffered as much by the cold as they did by the sweating stagnation of the air in the other situation, and the consequence was that they took such colds as brought on the most fatal diseases and swept them off almost beyond conception. Besides these things, they suffered extremely for want of provisions. The commissary pretended to allow a half a pound of bread and four ounces of pork per day but of this pittance they were much cut short. What was given them for three days was not enough for one day, and in some instances they went for three days without a single mouthful of food of any sort. 
They were pinched to a degree that some on board the ships would pick up and eat the salt which happened to be scattered there. Others gathered up the bran which the light horse wasted and ate it, mixed with dirt and filth as it was. Nor were men in this doleful condition allowed a sufficiency of water. One would have thought that water was so cheap and plentiful an element that they would not have grudged them that. But there are, it seems, no bounds to their cruelty. When winter came on, our people suffered extremely for want of fire and clothes to keep them warm. They were confined in churches where there were no fireplaces that they could make fires in, even if they had wood. But wood was only allowed them for cooking their pittance of victuals, and for that purpose very sparingly. Nor had they a single blanket or any bedding, not even straw, allowed them till a little before Christmas. At the time those were taken on Long Island, a considerable part of them were sick of the dysentery, and with this distemper on them they were first crowded on board the ships, afterward in the churches in New York, three, four, or five hundred together, without any blankets or anything even for the sick to lie upon, but the bare floors or pavements. Of this distemper numbers died daily, and many others, by their confinement and the sultry season, contracted fevers and died of them. During their sickness, with these and other diseases, they had no medicines, nothing soothing or comfortable for sick people, and were not so much as visited by the physician by the month together. It seems that one end of their starving our people was to bring them, by dint of necessity, to turn rebels to their own country, their own consciences, and their God. For while thus famishing, they would come and say to them, This is the just punishment of your rebellion. Nay, you are treated too well for rebels. You have not received half you deserve or half you shall receive. But if you will enlist into his majesty's service, you shall have victuals and clothes enough. As to insults, the British officers, besides continually cursing and swearing at them as rebels, often threatened to hang them all, and on a particular time ordered a number, each man to choose his halter out of a parcel offered, wherewith to be hanged, and even went so far as to cause a gallows to be erected before the prison, as if they were immediately to be executed. They further threatened to send them all to the East Indies, and sell them there for slaves. To these circumstances we subjoin the manner in which they buried those of our people who died. They dragged them out of their prisons by one leg and one arm, piled them up without doors, there let them lie till a sufficient number were dead to make a cartload, then loaded them up in a cart, drove the cart thus loaded out to the ditches made by our people when fortifying New York. There they would tip the cart, tumble the corpses together into the ditch, and afterwards slightly cover them with earth. As the only prisons in New York at the time were the New Jail and the New Bridewell, a number of the Presbyterian and Dutch Reformed churches, the buildings of Columbia College, the hospitals, and three great buildings known as sugar houses, were all made use of and filled with the suffering, despairing men. Amidst the horrors of these surroundings, not the least of the heroism in the struggle for liberty was exhibited, and many died for their country there as certainly as did others on the field of battle. Unquote. They being dead, yet speak. Years afterward, William Cunningham, when dying, made and signed the following confession. Quote, I was appointed Provost Marshal to the Royal Army, which placed me in a situation to wreak my vengeance on the Americans. I shudder to think of the murders I have been accessory to, both with and without orders from government, especially while in New York, during which time there were more than two thousand prisoners stored in the different churches by stopping their rations, which I sold. There were also two hundred and seventy-five American prisoners and obnoxious persons executed, 
out of all which number there were only about one dozen public executions, which chiefly consisted of British and Hessian deserters. The mode for private executions was thus conducted. A guard was dispatched from the provost about half-past twelve at night to the barrack street, now Chambers, and the neighborhood of the upper barracks to order people to shut their window shutters and put out their lights, forbidding them at the same time to presume to look out of their windows and doors on pain of death, after which the unfortunate prisoners were conducted, gagged, just behind the upper barracks, and hung without ceremony, and there buried by the black pioneer of the provost. Unquote. End of chapter 15